Welcome to Series 3 of Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In this series, we are speaking with senior portfolio managers to explore their view of investor relations, what constitutes best practice in corporate communications, and learning more about how companies can optimise their dialogue with their shareholders. In today's interview, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Bruff, one-off, if not the longest-standing fund manager in the city. After qualifying as a chartered accountant with Pricewaterhouse, Andy's investment career started in 1987 when he joined Schroeder's as a UK equity fund manager. He's been a portfolio at Schroeder's ever since and is head of Schroeder's London-based pan-European small and mid-cap team and manages the Schroeder's UK mid-250 fund, as well as a number of specialist institutional mandates for Schroeder's. Andy, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining me today. It's January 2024, so let's start by talking about what your outlook is for the year ahead and how are you feeling at the start of the year? You get to the new year, just tips over from you know 31st of December, people are sort of doom and gloom and everything, and they go, thank God, it's the 1st of January, everything's going to be better. I think that it's very rare for a government to go into a year when there's an election with a low rate of growth, so I think they'd be doing everything they possibly can get the rate of growth up in terms of people's incomes. And that's what we're sort of seeing, actually, if you look at the sort of income tracker, be it Asda or whatever, then actually as inflation's falling, food price inflation's falling a bit, then people are going to have more money in their pocket. Now, the key thing for us is working out where they're going to spend it. How is the outlook in terms of running a fund in 2024? What was the biggest challenge in 2023? Was it fund outflows? Not enough new interesting opportunities? Obviously, lots of undervalued stocks in the market. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, actually. I think you know, one of the things is we've seen the fund outflows. You know, I, I, when I finished the 2023, that was the 136th quarter of running money. But I can't remember a year where there's been such relentless outflows. And that really starts slow towards the end in some days. We do a sort of victory lap around the office to someone put 250 quid into one of the funds. And you had companies which were being taken out for a share price month half, and then someone comes along and says, I could be a 30% premium. And the fund managers have been forced to sell companies, if you like, to generate cash flow, which they could then go and allocate to other companies. And then, plus, the IPO market had failed dramatically in that a lot of the companies that come to the market had collapsed, and I think it was only one instead technology whose share price was above a float price. And so everything that could have gone wrong with the London market went wrong, you know. And looking now, you know, we've got a situation where can an IPO really get away at a, at a high valuation? Probably not because you get away at a sensible valuation. Yes, you could, you know. We've got to get back to the adage where everyone has to leave the party with a balloon. So the fund managers buying the shares make money, people selling the shares make money and get a good aftermarket, which over time will enable them to sell more shares to an audience which actually wants to buy them. And then the government's looking at ways of, you know, at the end of the day, can you get more capital into the London market? Because if you think of the galaxy, the sun is at the centre and the sun is really the pool of capital in the London market. Now, the planets could only go around the sun faster if they've got more energy. And so you need some way to some increase capital. And it could be a way of trying to get pension funds to invest, which they've tried to do. But if you're a pension fund trustee, you know, are you really going to suddenly go, yeah, I don't know, put it all on? 
biggest stock market, or you could say to the retail punter, where you've got 450 billion pounds approximately in ISAs, we'll give you a special British ISA on top, which you can invest in UK companies. And people are starting to go, hold on a minute, well, I'm getting 5% of my cash, but that might be going down. Against the backdrop, I'm not as gloomy as other people, but then, you know, I was born an optimist. Speaking to some other fund managers, one was saying how, because of the outflows, they had a portfolio of companies and they were having to sell a company that had a 35% upside from their perspective to invest in a company that had 100% upside in their perspective. And until we start to see those inflows and the capital coming back to the market, that's probably going to continue. That's fine management, isn't it? You yeah. know, ideally, either the portfolio, I have 100 stocks, which all had 100% upside. But, you know, it's just like, unfortunately, that's not the way of the world. So... If you look at your portfolio, then some shares will be cheaper than others, and your job is to allocate the capital to where you can make the most money. I think this idea that, you know, I'd like to hoard a lot of companies. You know, at the end of the day, fund managers aren't collectors, they're investors, and it's very easy to collect a load of shares rather than saying, well, actually, you know what, I think this one's worth cheaper than that one, so, you know, I'll sell that one and buy this one. Well, that, that's the job. You can't complain. And do you participate in IPOs, and how do you see the outlook for that market? Someone said to me, you know, Ruffy, you've made a career really, haven't you, avoiding IPOs? To a degree, that's true. I mean, we do do IPOs, but it's got to be on the basis that it's we're on the journey together and you're not going to just cash out and run away with more money, which a lot of people do. Yeah, and they kind of front-end profitability. You know, if you just look at the, remember the Aston Martin prospectus where you, know, you had to look at the sort of uh, increase in debtors to see and stop stopping loans or whatever, just to see that actually this is probably as good as it gets. Now, IPOs, I think hopefully private equity now needs to actually sell things at a sensible price. And if we can have a grown up conversation around the table, because what's happened is that fund managers in the main have been completely disillusioned by the IPO market. It ceased to function. So, what they've done is invest sort of four year old. Of behavior is sort of channeled that sort of hatred of the IPO market and private equity and said, right, you know, at that last party, you ran off with all the balloons, we didn't get them. So, using my inner four year old, because I didn't get a balloon, mommy and daddy, I'm not going to the next party. Can we talk a little bit about how you manage your funds? So, how do you screen companies, including any financial metrics that you track? What we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, make sure that. The credits actually turn up in the PL sort of released from the balance sheet, and the debits are sort of capitalized, taken out of the PL and capitalized in the balance sheet. Yeah, you know, there's no substitute reading the accounts, I'm afraid. You know, everyone talks about EV, EBITDA, or all these other metrics. I tend to try and look at sort of, you know, what is the level of profit after tax? You know, what is the level of profit that you actually pay tax on? And some companies are much better being honest than others. So it might surprise some people that actually the most conservative accounts in the London market are produced by Fraser's. But people go, well, where's my picture? How can that be? But, you know, I work out that probably no one else has read the report. In fact, Mike Ashley once said to me, he said, or he said, he said, I think you're the only person who read this. Because at the end of the day, we want companies that are conservative and we have to assume that all the forecasts going forward are wrong. So we want to be basing it off a solid business proposition where companies effectively have not recognised everything at once and have given themselves a bit of, you know, 
You told me before you got a favourite note to the accounts, which is the operating profit. Yeah, note's the account, note three. Yeah, operating profit is over charging the following. Yeah. And that gives you a clue of, you know, is that companies realising profit massive sales, and then you tie it back into what's happening to provision releases or what's happening to the level of stock. Has that gone up a lot because actually companies allocate large amounts of overheads for stocks? And so the more stocks you make, the more overheads you can take out of a PL. So there's loads of tricks. And it's quite interesting. I was on LinkedIn last night. This guy, David Snell, he used to run the PLC Awards, and he's just been appointed to the FRC. And so I congratulated him. And I said, what I would do if I were you, David, is I would find out who are the most the 20 most shortage stocks in the London market, and I'll go and see the auditor and say, right, can we go through them together? Or can we go and talk to the hedge funds? There's actually shortage Because at the end of the day, People were standing there with Carillion saying, yeah, the opinions are fine. And the hedge fund community worked out that it was all wrong. It's interesting. Is there anything, obviously, aside from being conservative and how you recognise revenue and profits, is there anything outside the financials you can do as a company to maybe increase your chances of you researching or looking into the business? Well, first of all, it's got to be an interesting area. Yeah. You know, if you always remember that sort of Warren Buffett, in great management business, it's the business that tends to keep its reputation. So if someone comes to see me and says, right, I've got a fantastic opportunity. I think the drinks wholesaling business is right for consolidation and you can't go really, you know. So, you know, if you think about it, equity stories are always tend to be identified with new areas, you know. So who would have thought that, you know, Revolut, Monza, all these things would come up, the fintech, everyone gets very excited. It doesn't quite work, but it's an interesting area. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find companies that are exposed to long-term growth characteristics or where sort of capacity has gone out of the market. If you get that combination with the sort of long-term bit of growth and capacity coming in, then that is not a bad sort of position to be in. Are there any particular sectors, sort of thematics you're looking at going into 2024 that are interesting to talk about? I think we're looking at companies that can hold on to their margins. Okay. I think the pressure on margins across a lot of companies is going to intensify. And we've seen that, you know, the industry I work in, the financial services, you know, it's, it's not about a race to the bottom. The pressure on margins is getting hard, much tougher in a lot of areas. So almost you've drawn back to, you know, house building, a little bit of land. Actually, 750,000 people have joined the country, got to live somewhere, it's not bad, long-term play potentially. You know, it's literally almost getting back to basics and saying, well, can you maintain your margins in that business, because I think that's going to be the relentless attack this year. Okay. Thinking back, so you've been a fund manager since 1987, I believe. Yeah, John Schroeder's 1987. I've been a fund manager since the 1st of January 1989. Which makes you the longest standing (laughs) fund manager in the city. How does fund management today compare to 10, 20 years ago? And interested in the impact of MIFID 2, for example, but any comments you have on, on the industry today versus... So like joining Schroeder's, fund management was very much a back of course, I didn't and Most people went to corporate finance. But amazingly, my crystal cut accent didn't quite cut it to get into corporate <laughs> finance. So I was sent... I got a job at Zambas at shows at those days because it was very much about water like i say it's people who felt it wasn't good enough to get into the funds so when i became a fund manager you were competing against buffton tufton the third 
because Boston had been sent there because he wasn't good enough in book five, so she wasn't good enough. And there are like meet him and phone him up. So hey, Boston, dear boy, I've got a wonderful lime stock for you. And Boston would say, what did they do? Oh, Boston, I don't think we need to worry about that, do we? And so Boston would buy the shares. Could be a colour roll or whatever. And then the share price was half. And the broker would phone up Buffin, say, Buffin, I'm terribly sorry, old boy. Uh, should we have another go? Buffin would say, yeah, yes, let's. Lunch at White's, so delightful. So that's who you were competing against. <laughs> yep. Now you've got rocket sciences all over. You've got people who've got more qualifications. You know, I, get, I hope expect them to have, you know, business cards which are about 20 inches long with all the qualifications on. And just for incredibly bright people because they've all been attracted in because actually it's not a bad job where you get paid reasonably well and you get to sort of play around with other people's money. There are worse things to do, right? And um, that's the ferocity of competition and the just explosion of information. Yeah. And, you know, companies used to report interims, finals, maybe a trading update, and that was it. Now, it's like, yeah, Mrs. Jones popped in and said, yeah, I'd like a quote on that, please, but better off stick out of the nest then. And then, so that's it. That's the big difference. The quantum information, velocity of speed of share price changes in the market, the lack of market makers, which massively increases the volatility because there's no, if you like, buffers to absorb stock on the buy or sell. And yeah, it's just, it's just a relentless competition. How do you stay on top of the volume of information? So maybe talk me through a typical morning. I know you like to print off an RNS statement first thing. Um, tell me a little bit more about just how you stay on top of things. It's quite interesting. So before lockdown, I would never have ever really thought Twitter. Never really thought that. It's only because this girl, Tamsin Freeman, PR World, asked me to do a video of my investing. And she put it onto Twitter. And so now I've got like 1,450 followers. I mean, the irony is, is that the oldest person at Trojas in fund management has more followers than the whole floor put together. <laughs> so I've been, I've got these various people on Twitter. And one person sends a summary at two minutes past seven of all the companies that have reported, whether they're in line, profit warning, upgrade, delivery. So I've cycled in. I'm sitting in the, the changing room. I'm just looking at my phone. Like, it's going to be a good day or a bad day. Go up like this morning, print off the, all the results, click through them, do calls with companies. You know, might just have all companies come in. Meetings might just be half an hour because these are the points we want to talk about. Uh, and or might be a bit longer for an agenda chat about the industry. And so there's no typical day, but it's just you've got to sort of kind of accumulate the information because there's no substitutes doing that and then you think actually i've just seen this company they mentioned that and i'll go from print the report and accounts and have a flip through and think actually these are really cheap and then give the ticket to the dealer to buy two million and at the end of the day they probably bought twenty five thousand. so that's the most frustrating thing in fund management is you can find an idea and then you can't buy the shares yeah which we say that to people and they go that can't be wrong. so that's the way it is right that's the we talk about Mythic too has that really made a difference? I mean, not really. I think, ironically, the quality of research in the London market has probably never been higher. Really? Okay. Yeah. So some of the stuff that you produce out of, you know, some of these houses like Redburn, Exane, et cetera, is high quality. And it might not get all the way down to the small cap area, which is fine. Has Mythic 2 changed it? 
Well, basically, it's just like a constant pressure on costs. Yeah. And it's a bit like when you look at the sort of London market, everyone says, yeah, we've got to save it. And you say, well, hold on. You know, I wrote to Sunak saying, you've got 10 years to save the market. Because if you think about it, pre-73, there were local exchanges in Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, all these sort of places north of London. And they all fell to the lack of liquidity. So they all came together to create the LSE. So it's just a natural progression where we just end up with one market. Mm-hmm. You know, we're happy to trade our currencies 24-7 yeah. and commodities. So, you know, why not? Just... It's interesting what you say on the quality of research. I think working with a range of companies, different market caps, the perception from inside the companies in IR is that it's a decline because analysts are covering more stocks than they have done before. The research is more reactive, so there's less leadership out there. But actually, all the fund managers I speak to have their preferred analysts from preferred houses who offer real insight. How much do you rely on those analysts to educate you about a new company, a new sector, come to you for ideas? You take someone like, you know, a Charles Hall at Peel Hunt. You know, he'll follow a range of companies from Gina's, WH Smith, Games Workshop. You know, couldn't get three more different companies. Hilton Foods, because he actually looks at the companies. You know, I can suggest to him that I think it's really interesting and the brokership might be potentially up for grabs or whatever. But I know if Charles Hall comes back to me and says, Andy, I've been to see this company that you recommended. It's fantastic. You know, we're going to have a play for the brokership and I'm going to follow it. Yeah. Now, that's great news. And I think companies and the whole IR function, they could do a lot more. And I think everyone looks at each other's websites or, you know, when I was an auditor, yeah, the most common tick you ever did was agree to last year. <laughs> that was it. You know, you said a coloured pencil. <laughs> That's great. You think, oh, great, easy tick. Like, you know, they're on trying to find out what's going on. And I think, you know, companies use the report and accounts to a degree, but it's, you know, I think they do a lot more on their website. Okay. In terms of educating, this is our business. Yep. This is how we make money. These are the inputs into our business. So when you see that, you know, Something's happened to oil or whatever. This could be the impact, but it's the what we protect ourselves against that. This is what we do, and this is how we sell it. And these are the size of our markets. And so, actually, the fund manager then has a bit of a knowledge about the company. What else do you wish companies did better from a comms perspective? We talked before about having a short presentation to max 10 slides. Yeah, max 10 slides. I think it's a case of coming in and we had games workshop today. You know, there's no presentation. You know, they expect us to have read the figures and to ask them questions. That's that you know you've done had a good meeting when the fund managers have asked most of the questions. Yep. Because they've read the results. But that comes from having a base of knowledge about the company. Yep. That they feel comfortable. So, you know, I've never played Warhammer, but last I know. <laughs> I've seen people with beards and sand painting. Figurines or whatever. You know, you you look at those sort of things. And so it's having that base knowledge. So if if the companies can provide the base sort of level of knowledge, then they've got more chance of having a good meeting with the fund manager. Yeah, that makes sense. What about annual reports? Do you or your team review those with a great deal of scrutiny? Well, you know, the annual report has just got out of control, isn't it? It's crushing. I was reading the Wetherspoon annual report today. You know, because it being dry Jan, it's probably the closest off we get to having to <laughs> read the weather speed annual That was 82 pages long. It's a good lamp. I'll take the Schroeder's one, 
that's probably over 200 pages long. You know, again, you've got a massive opportunity here to describe your business. Remember, problem financial, but it was doing really well. Had two pages of how the whole banking system works and how problem financial fits actually fit it into it. Now, what a brilliant two pages. But you know, you've got to produce a set of important accounts that you'd actually like to read yourself. There's a lot of things in there now, the whole sort of ESG thing, which you know, that's producing a lot of information and the pressure on companies to engage, etc. Which then you could argue is that affecting the London market because actually a lot of scrutiny and scrutiny in sort of private And do you attend site visits, capital markets days? Do you find those useful? I don't do company visits now. Oh, very rarely. Very, I might do one or two a year. The last one did was shoe zone, actually. But it's quite interesting. You know, capital market days, you've got to do a capital market day if you've got something to say. Too many people go, oh, let's have a capital markets day. And they've got nothing to say. You've got to have, right, what are the five new things you're going to tell me? Or are you just going to repeat what you've said before? I think... New information, but also keeping it succinct. Everyone's time poor. In terms of how you like to interact with companies, you've said to me before that a really good company in your portfolio, you won't need to see every set of results. It's more infrequent than that if they're performing well. Is that true? I think it's true in the past, if I'm honest. I think I probably slipped into the ways of everyone else. Okay. You know, Sunset's coming in, you go along. I mean, it's, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Because you're always going to learn something. But is it the best use of an hour of your time if you really know the stock? Okay. That's the thing. So I prefer to try to get, I said to my team, I'm going to try and get back to you know, only seeing companies that I'm worried about. You know, if I kind of wake up at three o'clock in the morning and think, you know what, I'm worried about the stock. And I'll just send them a handwritten letter. Yeah. So, so please pop in for a cup of tea next time we're in London. So that's the only handwritten letter they're going to get by yeah. that month. Or just, yeah, look at the report and counts and then come to the decision. But yeah, I think I just think people see too many companies too often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so fund management's a lot, you need a bit of thinking time, you know, because that quantum of information, you need to have some sort of idea that actually I'll go and have a chat with so and so who's in a private company to find out what, what they think. Well, you meet your companies for read across, though, because you're interested in the broader sector. Yeah, but you've got to be careful how you do that. So if the company comes in and you say, hi, great to see you. Yeah. Can you just tell me about something? Yeah. 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 is quite important in that respect. And how do you interact with brokers in terms of being introduced to companies, potential investment propositions, and also in terms of giving feedback? Isn't that a dreadful word? Feedback. What, you know, what did we do before there was feedback? Did we tell people what we thought about it? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have some feedback, and you go, yeah, you're not very good. Well, I don't want that sort of feedback, you know. And I think you build up a roster of brokers that you, you sort of trust. Yeah. Who say, I think this is interesting. And if someone says to me, I think that's interesting, then I'll, I'll have a look at it. And, you know, I always give brokers a chance. But you've got to be more careful at the small cap end because actually, typically, they'll be the, the only broker. Uh, be trying to get you on the shelf register so I can say register on the register and you have to say to yourself well, actually you know, you've got to be more cautious at the end of the market you know we tend to like companies that were big once and then become small yeah got a chance of becoming big again yeah okay and you've talked before about companies having too many advisors like two brokers financial PR M&A advisors How, why do you think that model 
has evolved and is it needed? I think it's evolved because brokers themselves have got lazy. So, you know, if when I started, a broker, there wasn't really any on that. Yeah, the broker did it. They, you know, you might see a company a couple of times a year. There's no IR. PR was, you know, something maybe that one or two people doing it, just get people in the Sunday papers, everyone read the Sunday business times or whatever. And then, you know, corporate broking, well, wasn't it? Corporate broking never existed. Right? So you had the stockbroker, the market maker, and the advisor. That was it. And then all these jobs have sort of sprung up, and the more jobs have come from it rather than so companies feel, feel juicy bad to have all these people involved. And you say, well, hold on a minute, yeah, between me and the company, there's the IR, PR, corporate broker, analyst, salesman, corporate financing, so like six people at least. And so if I'm going to talk to the company, I might have to go through all six people. You know, you know if I go home, talk to Mrs. Brough, I have to go through six people. <laughs> you know, it might get sort of lost along the way. I mean, obviously, after a night out, going through six people might be a slightly safer option. But, you know, it's a case of those cohort of people have to work out how to do each other's jobs. Because that way, you know, the broker should say, actually, we could do the PR or the IR or whatever and offer the package or you go to the auditor and say, right, actually, we could do the shareholder survey or whatever it is. But in some way, you're going to have less layers, I think, going forward. And if you could strip back the layers, what's the most, I guess, useful way to communicate with a company outside of direct contact with management? Again, I think it's a case of being fair in terms of information. You know, now you've got the internet, maybe it exists when I started, so actually, enfranchising your retail customer base, I think it's going to be increasingly important going forward. I think actually treating them fairly. It's quite interesting. So, you know, sort of like Brendan Shaw, you'll say, about having a capital markets day, and it's first come, first serve. You could be Mrs. Jones or you could be Andy Brock and Trojans, but you're treated exactly the same. Yeah. I think we're a long way from the market functioning like that. Lots of companies. Do- don't even do basic communication with retail investors. But I think there's a great price there. There is. And you work with some of the retail platforms to help access those investors. And I think from a governance perspective as well, it's always good yeah. to demonstrate equality in terms of how you're treating individuals. But you're right, and particularly as liquidity at the smaller end of the market yeah. continues okay. to be a challenge. It's a great way to access that audience. Can you say across your portfolio career, is there a standout investment that you've made over the years, or maybe on the flip side of that, a terrible one? You know, there's always highs and lows. What this career has taught me so far is there aren't that many winners, you know, and so you can spend more time on looking for a winner. It's, you can find one of a few of those, then they make up for a lot of losers. And if you've got one piece of advice that you want companies, PLCs, to take away from this conversation, what would that be? I think when you design a presentation, present to your 10-year-old, and if they can understand what you do, you're on the right track. You've got a quote at the end of your emails. Last time I checked, it was, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used to create them. Just tell me a little bit about that, and does, has that changed in January this year? It has changed. Okay. It tell has me. changed. So basically, there was a guy, Ajit Patel, who was at Gold Shield, where we had 29%. The company got taken over after a bit of a hiccup or whatever. And then he went to set up some Indian wellbeing centre. 
and he sends out a yearly sort of update. And he used to put these quotes on there, and I thought to myself, that's quite good. And then when I watched his film, St George's Day, which is probably the best gangster film, and there's a great quote in there, which was, may the best of your past be the worst of your future. But I kicked off with this, and then people kind of went, you know, people first of all thought it was just for them. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about having not enough time in your hands. Yeah. And so, and then you look at it, and so the current one is um, life is a one-time offer. So use it well. Nice, I like that. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on Inquire and for sharing your insights and perspectives on companies' communications with investors. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for joining Inquire, the investor relations podcast. Please look out for our next episode 